Well, we're back in the New Testament after a hiatus of several years. And we're in the book of John. We're in John chapter 2. And uh, we're looking at verses 13 through 25. Last week we looked at Jesus at a wedding feast. And how his first miracles turns a doomed wedding party into a celebration of joy. He gives the wedding guests wine, good wine, and they indulge in this wine. This turning of the water into wine, it offends many what we call teetotalers. I'm a teetotaler. <laughs> God put his finger on my drinking years ago, and uh, it was a small thing to give up. But he showed me quite vividly that my drinking of primarily beer needed to be a thing of the past. And he made that obvious to me. And I stress that when I teach about drinking and not drinking. For me, drinking is a sin. And I can't say that necessarily for you, but uh, uh, there's many people who also feel that way, that drinking is a no-no. But that is really between you and the Lord. But all drinking should be done, of course, in moderation. And to not drink and use scripture as prohibiting drinking, you're hard-pressed. You're just hard-pressed. Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. But to drink to the point of being drunk, it's clearly forbidden in scripture. Clearly. Our laws, our driving laws, Point oh eight in blood alcohol makes you a drunk and you will get a DUI. So if you drink to the point where your behavior is altered, that's prohibited by Scripture. But let me add, one out of eight people that ever taste alcohol have a lifelong problem with alcohol. So that's serious odds to consider when you drink. Yet Jesus is at this wedding party. And he takes six large water pots, 20 to 30 gallons each, and he turns them into wine. And that's something for us to consider. But now we go with Jesus from the wedding feast to a Passover. And Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So let's read John 2, verse 13 through 25. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, 
with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the money changers' money and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them this. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. And now when it was, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. It's Passover time in Jerusalem, and there are thousands of pilgrims that come into Jerusalem to the temple area. Barclay, a commentator, he puts the number of Jews there in Jerusalem at upwards of two million people. That's a lot of people. Now, the adult males were required to pay a temple tax. And it was about the equivalent of two days' wages. Now, here was the twist. The temple tax had to be paid with temple coinage. Roman coinage, which was what everybody used bore the image of a heathen emperor, and that was not allowed to be paid to the temple for your tax. And the money changers who changed your Roman money into temple money, they made exorbitant uh, profit over this exchange rate that would take place. And this, the, just the money changing was a big, big profit-making business. And this was done each and every year by the money changers, and it had become a custom that the people had to endure. But here we are with Jesus, and this is his first Passover as an adult male in his ministry. Jesus, it was said, his zeal for his father's house consumed him. Jesus is angry. But he takes time to fashion a whip of cords. That is anger under control. Jesus drives out the money changers, and he drives out all those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and he drives them out of the temple. And Jesus uses this whip of cords on those doing business in the outer court or in the court of the Gentiles. 
This is the only area, the only place in temple where Gentiles could come into. And so we see what the Gentiles who wished to worship God, what they had to endure. This area like a big swap meet market. And it totally angered Jesus. The disciples, they recall how it's written. Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house, speaking of the temple, has eaten me up. John, in his gospel, and we're just starting it, he first takes us to the miracle of conversion of water into wine. Then John, he shows us Jesus there in the temple driving out money changers and those selling animals, and he's cleansing the temple. And we have a pattern here of how Jesus works in lives. First there's the conversion, and then there's the cleansing. Many times we expect newborn Christians to be uh, totally perfect in all they do, and say, and usually it's a period of sanctification that we all go through and still go through. And it's kind of like the fisherman mentality. Jesus not only catches fish, but he cleans the fish he catches. Now those who are in control there in the temple, the Jewish elders are all part of it. Those that are making profit from the selling of animals and doing the money changing, who have taken away, now they've taken away the only place a Gentile could worship the Lord there at the temple. They're doing this in the outer court of the Gentiles. And those that he's driven out, they have a question for Jesus. What sign do you show us since you do these things? Notice they don't question what he has done. They question, by what authority are you doing these things? They realize that they knew they were in the wrong, but what right did Jesus have to drive them out of temple? What authority did he have? And there is a resistance to Jesus' behavior. And the authorities, those there, the temple guards and the like, they're in this area and they're doing nothing about what Jesus is doing, driving out these merchandisers. The temple guards are like ambivalent. They just don't even have anything to do with it. And the chief priest is silent, along with the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. We don't hear them objecting. Because the merchandisers themselves knew they were in the wrong. They knew they were sinning. But who is this Jesus? Who is he that he overturns tables and drives out animals and they say to him, give us a sign as to who you are. Who are you 
to cleanse this temple. We might be doing wrong, but who are you to chase us out? Give us a sign, Jesus. But the main sign that Jesus did, he drove them out of the temple, and they don't recognize that sign. But Jesus has an answer for them. Destroy this temple, and Jesus is referring to his body. And there are many who believe that when Jesus said, destroy this temple, that he tapped on his chest. He was speaking of himself, indicating his own body. Jesus was not out to destroy the temple, but he was there to correct the behavior of those that came there to worship. And they're being hindered from worshiping by the merchandising of these money changers and those selling sacrifices. When Jesus, fast forward a little bit, when he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, before his crucifixion, the chief priests and the elders, they heard testimony given how Jesus declared, destroy this building, this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. They remembered that. And the Jews, they jump on this statement by Jesus, saying, hey, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But we have something to notice here. The resurrection of Jesus was a full Godhead happening. Jesus said of himself, I will arise. God the Father raised Jesus. That's in Romans 6, 4. The Holy Spirit claims a raising Jesus, and that's in Galatians and Romans both. All the Godhead is involved in the resurrection of Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples remember they remembered the words of Jesus, how he would raise from the dead. For the disciples, this makes the scriptures alive. It causes them to understand that Jesus is the word, that he is pronouncing things that of himself. And it makes scripture all the more alive when they witness the truth of it happening before them. In verse 23, though, Jesus, here at this Passover feast in Jerusalem, many of the people, uh, the loyal Jews, they're happy, they're excited about Passover. And many, it says, believe that Jesus is Messiah the long-awaited Christ. And they believe because of the signs that Jesus did, making the whip of cords, driving out the money changers, driving out those who uh, profited from people trying to worship, driving out those who would sell sacrifices, the lambs, the oxen, the doves, 
the people, the regular Jewish worshipers, they have been offended by the ripoff of the Passover preparation. And it's all being done there in the temple of the Lord. And the regular guy, the regular worshiper, he welcomes the driving out of the merchandisers. He's glad to see that uh, those that were making money off of me worshiping is driven out of temple. In our churches, all of us have a varied background. When I was young, I attended a church that put pressure on its members to give, to make pledges even for future giving. And at times they would take up an offering, and then they would take up another offering, and then they would pass the plate again and again. If you attend here on a regular basis, you realize we do not take up an offering. There's offering boxes back there. Put your offerings in those boxes. We don't ever want to pressure anyone to give by guilt. There's no arm twisting that goes on here. Giving is to be an act of worship. And our little offering boxes by the exes, they're there for your convenience to give as you desire. But your giving is to be done how? With a cheerful heart. If you can't give cheerfully, don't give. Don't bother. <laughs> and understand, you can never outgive God anyway. We only give back to him a portion of what he's given us. So be a cheerful giver. The people who now believe in Jesus because of the signs, well, some of them are caught up in a, what we would call a moment of excitement. And we read in verses 24 and 25, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. For Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. I find that passage very interesting. We, mankind, can think, we can reason within ourselves. I think I'll give God a break and believe in him. Maybe get saved. Receive eternal life when I choose. Know this and understand. Salvation belongs to God. In Revelation 7.10, it says, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb or Jesus. Jesus does not commit himself to these Jews there at Passover 
who are believing temporarily. They're believing with a fickle heart. And I find it's extremely interesting that our all-knowing Lord and Savior chose not to commit to those that are believing because of a sign. They only are giving assent or agreement to Jesus temporarily. Why would that be here? Our opening reading was believe in Jesus, testify with your mouth, and be saved. This explains to me who truly is saved and who is not saved. Those whom our Lord is committed to, you're saved. And we've all seen and heard those who claim to be Christians but do not demonstrate a Christian life. Now, we cannot judge them. We really can't. You cannot ever judge the heart of another person. And you can't judge who has truly been saved or who hasn't. However, Jesus did not commit himself to this group of temporary believers they're there at the temple they see what he does they agree with it they believe but Jesus doesn't commit himself to them who Jesus truly looks upon as a believer Jesus commits to them what does he commit he commits salvation to them because salvation belongs to the Lord. Belongs to our God. So, I urge each and every believer to be steadfast in your belief of Jesus. Because Jesus knows each and every heart. You can't fool him. Jesus, John said of him, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Be part of that believing system. Amen? Amen. We will have people that are in the prayer area. If you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we definitely want to pray with you and assist you any way we can in that. But don't let it ever be a lighthearted decision. Consider what you're doing. There are many evangelists who will do anything they can to have you say a sinner's prayer. But don't say that sinner's prayer unless you mean it. Commit yourself to the Lord, and he will commit to you. Amen? Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.